patients were aware but paralyzed. I definitely think this one was unnerving for all of us. So what's our real take-home point here? This study does not refute evidence of hyperoxia post-cardiac arrest. It's something I would never wish on any of my patients. Welcome everyone to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Wishing all of you a very happy 2023. It is so hard to believe we have turned yet another year on the calendar, but we are so thankful that you are joining us, kicking off 2023 with us here at CCPEM. And we are, as always, excited to do our annual literature review. As we begin a new year, it is always fun to look back over the preceding 12 months to say, well, what were some important articles from the 2022 critical care and resuscitation literature that we should know about and we should take with us as we begin this new year here in 2023. And we're gonna cover a few of those articles during this podcast. But before jumping into the articles, the take home messages themselves, let me bring in, as always, my amazing co-host here on CCPEM, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. John, I'm gonna turn to you. It's been a few weeks since we've chatted here on the podcast. The holidays have passed. We've entered 2023. How have the last few weeks been for you? Thanks, Mike. I can't say enough how lucky I am over this past year, 2022. Fortunate with family, friends, and work, and also having a great family at CCPM with you guys. This year has been great. Just looking back, we've published a number of articles on shock and resuscitation in my research group, and we met today and kind of went over those things to celebrate. So it's been a great year. Thanks. Dr. Rodriguez. Yeah, I echo those sentiments about family and friends and all of you. You, my co-podcasters, appreciate the year we've had. A lot to be grateful for and excited for the new year. Out here in California, we've gone from severe drought to just coming up on a month of daily rains with a lot of flooding, but hopefully we'll make it through. Uh, Hope so as well, Rob. And we'll turn our attention to New Orleans, Dr. W. Yes, and so... Again, wonderful things in New Orleans. The Jazz Fest lineup is just rolled out. So the last weekend in April, first weekend in May, we're all excited about that. It's just a time to be reflective in the past year and hearing the term grateful over and over again, both for my work community, my podcast community, as well as my family. Just so much to be grateful for in these times. Thanks, gentlemen. That was great to hear. And I think All four of us would definitely say we are grateful to all of you, all of you for listening here with us on CCPEM, participating in the discussion, emailing questions, many of you stopping me in the ED to ask about some of the recordings, because I know many of our staff, our listeners, our longtime listeners as well. So super grateful for all of you and really look forward to an exciting year here in 2023 with all of you. Well, let's start our look back over the last 12 months in terms of articles. A ton has been published in 2022. We can't cover every article in its entirety. And for those of you that regularly listen every month, some of these articles you've heard before. So what we're going to do is not 
do a deep dive into all of these articles, talk about the nuances, the in-depth limitations. That is already existing on prior podcasts. And those of you who have can refer back to those podcasts. Those who are just joining us as new listeners, many of these articles that will just touch on the key points, we do have a definite deep dive, deeper dive into these articles. Just look back through the archives here on the show. Well, with that, Dr. Greenwood, I'm going to go to you first for a more recent article that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Now, when it comes to cardiac arrest, perhaps no greater critical illness than cardiac arrest. And in 2021, we learned that from a medication standpoint, well, epinephrine didn't change long-term survival with meaningful neurologic recovery, studying the folks that were in the paramedic two trial. We learned from the COCA trial that perhaps giving calcium to undifferentiated cardiac arrest patients wasn't beneficial. And then for those with in-hospital cardiac arrest, the combination of vasopressin and corticosteroids did not result in an improvement in ROSC or survival to hospital discharge, or most importantly, survival to hospital discharge with meaningful neurologic recovery. But there's a new paper, relatively new paper, regarding another critical aspect of cardiac arrest resuscitation, and that is defibrillation. What was that article? Yeah, so this was published by Dr. Cheskies in New England Journal just a few months ago, and this is probably your local pre-hospital care provider's favorite party trick, the question of whether or not double sequential defibrillation versus vector change defibrillation improved outcomes after cardiac arrest with a refractory VF. And remember, vector change is that anterior-posterior pad placement instead of the traditional anterior lateral placement. Now, this study was done in Canada, don't you know, from about 4,000 paramedics. And what they did was they enrolled about 400 patients. These were adult patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who had refractory VF. And that was after three intervals of defibrillation with two-minute intervals of CPR between. So if they did not yet convert to sinus rhythm or a stable return of spontaneous circulation, they were randomized to either the usual standard care shock again, or one of the vector change approach, or double sequential defibrillation. And obviously in this trial, the primary outcome was survival to hospital discharge, but they also looked at other important outcomes, which are termination of VF, ROSC, and good neurologic outcome. Now, the one important thing, remember about this study, if you guys remember back, is that unfortunately, they did not enroll the planned number of patients that were going to be needed to meet their statistical power. And that was stopped by the DSMB because of all the healthcare provider shortages that are literally everywhere, even affecting Canada. And so they had to stop at about 400 patients, but they were able to publish this in New England Journal. So, I mean, that tells me there's definitely some good work here. And here's what they found. Well, in terms of their primary outcome, what they found was there is a significant difference, it appears, by relative risk ratio for double sequential defibrillation and the vector change compared to standard defibrillation for refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, when looking at the other outcomes like termination of EF, ROSC, and good neurologic outcome, again, it looked pretty favorable for double sequential defibrillation and vector change. Now, the double sequential defibrillation does appear to have a slightly larger effect size here. So I think that all in all, that's a pretty strong signal that double sequential defibrillation may be a 
good thing to consider early on in refractory VF. And I think if I remember correctly, all of us were pretty on board with saying we had this technique in our armamentarium and considered it early as well. Now, there were some limitations that we talked about being that obviously it was stopped early and only enrolled 44% of its target population. A few patients did not receive their assigned treatment arm, which sometimes can happen during a chaotic cardiac arrest clinical kind of scenario. And the vector change group in particular had a fragility index of one, meaning that specifically for the primary outcome, if one patient had not achieved the primary outcome, that it would have been a null finding. So that's important. But essentially the take-home point here is that there's a signal of benefit for double sequential and possibly a anterior posterior pad placement for refractory VF. Thanks so much, John. That was an outstanding high-level review of a very important article with respect to cardiac arrest resuscitation. Continuing to learn more, talked about the medication information, but now looking at defibrillation and dual sequential defibrillation. Key, key article. Well, Peter, I'm going to turn to you now. Let's just say we've Happen to use dual sequential. We have got a patient back. We've achieved ROSC. We're getting them admitted to the hospital. Now the critical post-arrest period begins. It's a topic that we love chatting about here on CCPM, care of the post-arrest patient. But many of the recommendations, many of our current practices in these patients are actually based on observational and sometimes retrospective data. But in 2022, there was an article or study that happened to be in two parts. So let's break it up once again, just like the authors did in terms of their publication, that inform us about post-arrest blood pressure targets and then oxygen targets. Give us the high-level review of the blood pressure target article. What was that? Who did it? And what did they find? You got it. So it's a Dane group, group out of Denmark, published in New England Journal of Medicine earlier this year, which was Kergaard, Moeller, and Schmidt et al., and looking at blood pressure targets and comatose survivors of cardiac arrest. And again, the primary objective was to test whether a mean arterial pressure of 63 versus a mean arterial pressure of 77 would be superior in preventing death or a severe anoxic brain injury among those comatose survivors of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So we already know that we're looking at two different pressures. So it was a randomized clinical trial with a two-by-two factorial design, one looking at the mean arterial pressure targets, the other oxygen. We're going to focus on mean arterial pressures for the purpose of this singular article. They looked at two medical centers in Denmark. They looked at adults 18 and older. You were comatose, out of hospital, cardiac arrest. And then the intervention, the experimental arms, the clinical staff and investigators, patients and outcome assessors were unaware of the assigned blood pressure targets, but were told for each of them to target a mean arterial pressure of 70. Actual blood pressure targets were achieved by assigning patients to an electronic module that was set to show either 10% higher or lower values than the actual mean arterial pressure. So clinicians would achieve a 63 versus a 77 millimeter of mercury group. Resuscitation to mean arterial pressures targets of 70 was achieved using a three-stage approach starting with IV fluids to achieve a CVP of 10, and then a norepinephrine infusion, and then dopamine as a second-line presser if needed. The primary outcome was a composite of death or discharge from the hospital with a cerebral performance category of three or four within 90 days or at the time of discharge. 
The secondary outcomes, and there's a few of them, death from any cause within 90 days, time to renal replacement therapy or dialysis, neuron-specific enolase levels at 48 hours after randomization, and multiple different cognitive scores at three months. So what are we looking at in results? So in total, 802 patients were enrolled from March 2017 to December 2021. So there's a little thing called COVID going on in the midst of some of this, particularly at the tail end. They looked at 789 patients were included. The high blood pressure group had 393 patients. The low BP group had 396. In general, the trial appears to have achieved a mean arterial pressure difference of 10.7 points starting at randomization. So it really looked at 65 versus 75. And the randomization typically took place within the ICU, not within the ED. So what are we looking at for outcomes? In the high blood pressure crew, for primary outcome, 34%. In the low blood pressure group, primary outcome, 32%. These were not statistically significantly different. There was also no difference in any of the secondary outcomes, including death from any cause at 90 days, which was in the high BP group, 31%, and the low BP group, 29%. The three-month CPC or other neurological assessment scores were not different either. No difference in any of the recorded complications, no difference in infection, arrhythmia, bleeding, metabolic disorder, or seizures. So one of the things from a limitation standpoint, seeing that there's no difference between the high or low mean arterial pressure groups, they did not achieve their goal of separation of 14 points between high and low. They kind of settled out at 10.7. The blood pressure targets were not titrated based on the degree of anoxic injury. So we really don't know that those with worse anoxic injury may have benefited from a higher blood pressure target. We don't know that. It didn't answer that question. Long-term neurological outcomes were only measured in only 65% of the survivors, and this is due to the limitations of COVID-19 and the pandemic. So what's our real take-home point for this study? A mean arterial blood pressure of 65 versus 75 millimeters of mercury did not result in any significant differences in either primary death or severe disability after our out-of-hospital cardiac arrest from a likely cardiac cause. Outstanding review, Peter. So this is really informative, whereby prior guidelines didn't strongly recommend, but suggested that some post-arrest patients may need a higher MAP, and in fact, some may still need a higher MAP. But when this particular trial looked at it in a randomized fashion, there wasn't a difference in that primary outcome when targeting 65 versus 75. So important article. Well, that was only part one of the article. Part two really dealt with the oxygen targets in post-arrest patients. Rob, let me bring you into the conversation here. Tell us about this second part of this trial. Yeah, Mike, this is the same investigators, same group of investigators, two by two factorial design. So really the same group of patients. And in this factorial, in this part of the study, they sought to evaluate whether a restrictive versus a liberal oxygen target was superior in patients who remained comatose from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And I won't go over too much on the methods. It was the same group of patients. Their intervention in this group was restrictive target was defined as a PAO2 target of 68 
to 75 millimeters of mercury with the initial FiO2 set at 30% and adjusted up to meet that assigned target. And then the liberal target group was a target PaO2 of 98 to 105 millimeters of mercury with the initial FiO2 set at 60% and then titrated presumably down to that PaO2. In terms of primary outcome, their outcome was a composite of death or discharge from hospital with a cerebral performance category of three or four within 90 days at time of discharge, similar to the prior study. And their secondary outcomes were plasma neurospecific enolase levels at 48 hours, death from any cause, and 90-day scores on the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. And so in terms of the results, they had 798 patients, similar as in the other one, equally matched. Their characteristics were well-balanced between the two groups. Notably, on arrival to the ICU, both groups of patients had similar PaO2 and FiO2 values. So before they entered into the study, they were well-matched in terms of the intervention. Separation between the two groups was seen within two to four hours and remained consistently there through the first 48 hours. So the median duration of mechanical ventilation in the restricted group was 57 hours, while in the liberal target group, it was 61 hours. So in terms of their primary outcome, the primary outcome was in 32% in the restrictive target group versus 33.9% in the liberal target group, and there was no statistical difference in this outcome. Likewise, there were no significant differences in secondary outcomes or adverse events. There's a few limitations similar to the prior study from this research. It was open label. They only enrolled patients with a presumed cardiac etiology for cardiac arrest. Notably, the PaO2 to FiO2 ratio was higher in this trial than others, suggesting that hypoxic respiratory failure was not common in this trial. And for some, the spontaneous PaO2 values were higher than target values without supplemental oxygen. And it was also limited by the number of patients who could be evaluated in person at 90 days. But the bottom line on this study is that there's no difference in composite outcome with either strategy in terms of restrictive versus liberal oxygen targets. I would note, however, that the PaO2 in the high group, in the supposed liberal target group, the max PaO2 target was 105. So this study does not refute evidence of hyperoxia post-cardiac arrest. In other words, you should still avoid hyperoxia post-cardiac arrest in comatose survivors of post-cardiac arrest. Outstanding, Rob. That was an expert review analysis, and I think a great, great take-home points there for the second part of the box trial. So three important articles, one dealing with defib in cardiac arrest, and then the box trial talking about or analyzing post-resus BP, and the second part, post-resuscitation O2 targets. 
Well, let's shift gears now away from cardiac arrest, post-arrest to another common critical illness, and that is sepsis. While we're not going to cover this article here, I'll direct you back to one of our podcasts during 2022, and that was on a JAMA article regarding the timing of source control in sepsis. That's an interesting study. Take a listen to that podcast. But John, what I would like to go over is another frequent component in the resuscitation of patients with sepsis, and that is the administration of IV fluids. And in 2022, the classic trial was published. Can you give us an overview and the findings of this particular trial? Yeah, absolutely. So the classic trial really was designed, and as what the author said, their primary objective was to evaluate the effect of a defined version of restrictive fluid administration versus standard on mortality in patients admitted to ICU with septic shock. And I would argue that while this was looking at early fluid administration, it may not have actually been for fluid resuscitation per se, and I'll tell you why in just a second. So this was a trial that took place in over 30 ICUs in Europe and included adult patients who had been admitted with septic shock defined by the usual septic shock criteria, as in a lactate greater than two with a vasopressor inotrope requirement to maintain stable hemodynamics. And they had to have received at least a liter of fluid before the screening period and been enrolled within 12 hours of the screening period. And so what they did was they randomized to either a restrictive IV fluid administration, which was defined by basically a few different criteria. So if they met any of the criteria, they got a 250 to 500 cc fluid bolus. And those criteria were severe hypoperfusion that they defined as a lactate greater than four, a MAP less than 50 despite vasopressors or inotropes, a modeling score that was high or low urine output during the first two hours of randomization. They were also given fluids to replace documented fluid losses, correct dehydration or electrolyte deficiency, and to ensure that their total daily fluid intake was about one liter. So we can have a discussion for days about that severe hypoperfusion group, I think. The standard IV fluid group had no restrictions on the amount of fluids given, and they could be given fluids to improve hemodynamics, kind of all the usual things that patients would get fluids for in, in the ICU. Primary outcome was 90-day mortality, and they looked at a number of other secondary outcomes, including adverse events like AKI, adverse events related to crystalloids, life support at 90 days, and days alive and out of the hospital at day 90. And this was a large trial, so they included over 750 groups per arm, and the characteristics were all very similar. Now, the median fluids before the 24-hour period prior to randomization was pretty similar. So each patient got probably about three liters between the standard and the restrictive group prior to getting enrolled in this protocol. And in terms of comparing the groups afterwards, there was an early difference between groups. So essentially a two liter difference between the standard and restrictive group administered early on in the ICU. And that in total, the cumulative volume of fluids given in the ICU was also about two liters difference between groups. The restricted group being about two liters less, obviously, than the standard group. The fluid balance between groups was about 750 ml, so a little less than a liter difference between groups. And there was a lot of crossover or protocol violations. So the restricted group, there was 20% violation versus standard of 13%. 
So with that being said, I think we could all probably guess what the outcome for the primary outcome would be, that it was a no difference in 90-day mortality and adjusted absolute risk difference of 0.1. And none of the secondary outcomes had a difference either. So I think the limitations are pretty clear with this trial. Number one, it was also an unblinded trial, which I didn't mention. So there's always opportunity for bias there. The data regarding co-interventions and hemodynamic factors really wasn't discussed. And definitely some protocol violations did occur. So the take-home point from this, I think, is more for like our ICU group listeners that among patients with septic shock in the ICU, a restrictive strategy that's prescribed by lactate greater than four, MAP less than 50 despite pressors, modeling score, which I do like the modeling score, and low urine output and sepsis, probably not going to make much of a difference in your patient's outcome. Thanks so much, John. Outstanding review of the classic trial. Well, let's stay on the topic of fluids. And as we had talked about before we started this recording, it seems like so long ago that the PLUS trial was published. In fact, it was less than a year ago. This was a study published in, I believe, February of 2022. We did a deep dive on this at that time. But this, in essence, is a study out of Australia and New Zealand looking at the use of balanced crystalloid solutions versus normal saline. Specifically, the title was Balanced Multi-Electrolyte Solution versus Saline in Critically Ill Adults. This overall was looking at whether this balanced multi-electrolyte solution, and in this study, this was Plasmalite 148, actually lowered mortality in critically ill patients when compared with normal saline. So this was a double-blind parallel RCT, adult patients who were in the ICU, whereby the intensivist decided that this patient needed fluid resuscitation. And in essence, their intervention was they were randomized to either normal saline or this balanced multi-electrolyte solution throughout their ICU stay. Importantly, and this comes in in limitations, once the patient got outside of the ICU, really they did not put any restrictions on the type of fluid or dictate the type of fluid that patients could receive. Overall, their outcome of the PLUS study was looking at death from any cause at 90 days following randomization with a host of secondary outcomes that are quite common in critical care studies. Overall, this particular study, they included over 5,000 patients, essentially equally randomized to either plasmalite 148, the balanced electrolyte solution, or normal saline. Notably, these patients, the whole group, about 80% were intubated and receiving mechanical ventilation, and a little over 40% had sepsis. Also equally as important in terms of those characteristics, just under half came to the ICU from either the OR or PACU, so a slightly different patient population than undergoing resuscitation perhaps in an ED or recess unit. Overall, the primary outcome was no different. So that 90-day all-cause mortality was no different between those that got randomized during their ICU period to receive a balanced electrolyte solution for resuscitation compared with normal saline. No difference in the secondary outcomes and no difference in adverse events. Now, from a limitation standpoint, as we talked about during the dedicated podcast for this study, they had initially estimated to get about 9,000 patients in this trial to show an absolute difference of about 3% in their 90-day all-cause mortality. But as a result of things, and Peter mentioned this really to start off our discussion, COVID, lots of things affected recruitment. So overall, they 
re-estimated or re-ran the sample size at 5,000 to detect a difference of closer to 4%. In addition, they used the Plasmalite 148 product, and as I already mentioned, really didn't control for the type of fluid that patients received once they got discharged or transferred outside of the ICU. But nonetheless, the PLUS trial is an important piece of literature from the 2022 literature in terms of resuscitation, looking at this balanced electrolyte solution, and it did not find a difference in 90-day all-cause mortality. Well, Peter, I'm going to turn back to you. We're going to transition to another topic. Let's just kind of still stay on some fluid resuscitation. We've talked about cardiac arrest, post-arrest. We've now hit on sepsis, fluid resuscitation, but another common thing we do is rapid sequence intubation. We intubate patients that are high risk of having peri-intubation cardiovascular collapse, peri-intubation cardiac arrest, and often to prevent that, we administer IV fluids. However, there's a study that was published in 2022. Take us through that to determine if that practice is beneficial. Absolutely. Thank you, Mike. And so this is Russell et al. And the effect of fluid bolus administration on cardiovascular collapse among critically ill patients undergoing tracheal intubation, a randomized clinical trial published in JAMA earlier this year. And again, examining the effect of IV fluids bolus on cardiovascular collapse among critically ill adults undergoing intubation and receiving positive pressure ventilation. And so the methods, it's a multicenter parallel group unblinded, pragmatic, randomized controlled trial with 11 ICUs across the U.S. And these were adult patients undergoing tracheal intubation. They were going to receive medications to induce anesthesia and positive pressure ventilation with either bag valve mask or non-invasive ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy. So what's the intervention? Patients were randomized in a one-to-one ratio to receive an IV fluid bolus or not. In the fluid bolus group, operators instructed to infuse 500 cc's of isotonic crystalloid of choice, and they infuse as much as possible before induction, and then administer any of the remaining amount after induction and during the intubation. Those that received no fluid bolus group, initiation of a new IV fluid bolus was not permitted except as a treatment for hypotension or if the operator determined that IV fluids were necessary. All other aspects of the intubation were left to the operator, most notably the choice of induction agents, operator-dependent, and the use of vasopressors, again, operator-dependent. What were the primary outcome? Well, obviously, cardiovascular collapse, one or more of the following, either a new or increased receipt of vasopressors between induction and two minutes after intubation. Another is a systolic blood pressure of less than 65 millimeters of mercury between induction and two minutes after intubation. The third is cardiac arrest between induction and one hour after intubation. And then the last is death between induction and one hour after intubation. So those were our primary outcomes. Secondary outcome was death prior to day 28. So 28-day mortality, really looking after the intubation after 24 hours. In total, 1,065 patients were included in the primary analysis. The fluid bolus group 538, no bolus 527, well balanced between the two groups. In the group that received IV fluid, the fluid bolus group, 99.4 of the group received the bolus. Majority of the bolus was administered prior to induction. The median volume of IV fluids was 500 cc's. 
in the no fluid bolus group, only 1.1% of those folks received a bolus. Intubation, the approach to preoxygenation, the choice of induction agents, systolic blood pressure, and saturations at induction were not significantly different between the groups. Approximately 12% of the patients in both groups had a vasopressor bolus or an infusion of vasopressors administered between enrollment and induction. Approximately 97.5% of the patients in both groups received positive pressure ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy. So the bulk of these were either getting non-invasive mechanical ventilation or bag valve mask prior to laryngoscopy. So our primary outcome, cardiovascular collapse in the fluid bolus group, 21%. In the no fluid bolus group, only 18.2% but they did not differ significantly between the two groups in the sensitivity analysis. They also did not decrease the incidence of cardiovascular collapse in any pre-specified subgroup. So secondary outcome, death at 28 days. The fluid bolus group, 40.5%, and the no fluid bolus group, 42.3%. So the limitations here, they used a composite outcome that makes it a little tougher may not be generalizable to those with cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, or other urgent needs for intubation? Would the results have been different if the volume used was more than 500 cc's? We won't know that because it's just looked at 500. And then the trial evaluated fluid bolus prior to induction to prevent cardiovascular collapse. It did not evaluate a fluid bolus used to treat hypotension during the intubation. So what's our real take-home point here? Well, among critically ill adult patients, and this is again, undergoing intubation within the ICU, and we're extrapolating that to our ED, the administration of a 500cc fluid bolus did not decrease the incidence of cardiovascular collapse. So of no benefit between the two groups. Great job, Peter, reviewing the PREPARE2 study. Well, let's just say we get through the intubation. We actually successfully secure the endotracheal tube. We initiate mechanical ventilation. Let's end our podcast here on just two or three key articles related to mechanical ventilation. Rob, I'm turning back to you for a review of this first article. This, I believe, was the pilot trial looking at oxygen targets or oxygen saturation targets for adults receiving mechanical ventilation. Tell us what this study was and what the take-home message is. So, Mike, the pilot study was another New England Journal article and in this study, they sought to determine the effects of low, intermediate, and high SpO2 targets on outcomes in critically ill patients who are receiving mechanical ventilation. So this was a pragmatic, unblinded, cluster-randomized crossover trial conducted in the ED and ICU at Vanderbilt University, a great institution. Their initial enrollment began before the pandemic in July of 2018, they paused for a couple of months in April and May of the first year of the pandemic, 2020, and then resumed and completed the study by October of 2021. And they included adults 18 years or older in the ED and the ICU, and they were enrolled at the time of first receipt of mechanical ventilation, basically right after intubation. And they randomized all eligible patients in the ED and ICU together as a single cluster to an SpO2 target. 
And every two months, the ED and ICU switch together between the lower intermediate and higher SpO2 targets in a random sequence. So this is a really good study design to study this particular intervention. In terms of the numbers for the low SpO2 target, that target was 90% with a range, goal range between 88 and 92%. The intermediate SpO2 target was 94%, which was a range of 92 to 96%. And then their high SpO2 target of 98% was between a range of between 96 and 100%. So they adjusted the FiO2 to target the SpO2 within 15 minutes of the initiation of mechanical ventilation. And they ended that target when they extubated the patient or at the end of two months. If continuous SpO2 monitoring was not available, which was rare, target of 60 millimeters of mercury, 70 millimeters of mercury, and 110 millimeters of mercury in the low, intermediate, and high target groups, respectively. So their primary outcome was number of days alive and free and mechanical ventilation through day 28. And their secondary outcome was all-cause mortality at day 28, which are both very, very reasonable outcome measures. So they enrolled a total of 2,541 patients, and they were pretty much evenly matched between the three groups in terms of numbers. So in terms of the primary outcome, the primary outcome was similar in all three groups. It was 20 days in the low SpO2 versus 21 and 21 in the two other groups, in the intermediate and high SpO2 groups. So there was no significant difference in the primary outcome. Likewise, in terms of the secondary outcomes, they were evenly matched. There was the low SpO2 group, it was 34.8% with that outcome. In the intermediate group, it was 34%, and in the high SpO2, it was 33.2%. In terms of safety outcomes, there were also similar. So the limitations are it's a single center and smaller limitation is that they started the intervention immediately after intubation. So this precluded assessments of severity of lung injury before enrollment. Clinicians were not blinded to the target assessments and they did not control for other interventions, especially PEEP and sedation and weaning approaches. The bottom line from this study is that among critically ill patients in the ED and ICU receiving mechanical ventilation, the use of low, intermediate, and high oxygen targets did not affect number of ventilator-free days. Outstanding. So some important results here from the pilot trial. Well, John, I started with you with dual sequential defibrillation. Let's kind of wrap things up and bringing you back in to talk about an important aspect of mechanical ventilation and perhaps an, an alarming statistic here as we wrap up on our 2022 literature review. 
Yeah, Mike, I definitely think this one was unnerving for all of us. This was by Brian Fuller, publishing Critical Care Medicine, where he and his group were looking at awareness with paralysis in ventilated ED patients. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here, this means you're completely paralyzed after RSI, but also aware of what's going on, which obviously is not just frightening from the patient perspective, but from the clinician perspective, because it's something I would never wish on any of my patients. And so what this study was, was really a secondary analysis of another trial, the ED sedation trial that was a multi-center perspective before and after trial. In a number of EDs, I think it was about three academic tertiary medical centers, where they looked at adults who were intubated in the emergency department and received a neuromuscular blocker during RSI. And what they did was to try to figure out how many patients were aware during this time, patients had to report a memory of wakeful paralysis using a specific questionnaire that was assessed by a study team member after extubation, either before discharge or after discharge by telephone. And they set this up in a way where there were a number of different reviewers going over the questionnaires and adjudicating responses to make sure that it this wasn't like a maybe, maybe this was legit. And so the primary outcome was awareness while paralyzed. And then there were some secondary analyses as well. And so they basically looked at almost 400 patients in the final study population. And it appears that there was a little bit of a difference for those patients who were aware while paralyzed. They were generally younger. They were generally more often male, had a history of some sort of alcohol use or psychiatric illness, and they were less severely ill at the time of RSI. And in terms of how frequent or how often this happened, well, in the Fuller study, between 3 and 4% of patients experience awareness while being paralyzed. And notice a few risk factors, and those included rocuronium use. In fact, 92% of patients with awareness received rocuronium, but at the same time, I think it's probably a more common paralytic used in most emergency departments today. So, you know, that can maybe explain that, but it was statistically significant predictor of awareness while paralyzed. And then I think that if we look at the limitations, clearly, you know, this was a small sample size. Maybe it wasn't generalizable, but overall, this was a small study, but the data is important here that awareness while paralyzed is present in probably about 3% of survivors from ED mechanical ventilation, and that we really need to be careful when we use rocuronium because of the prolonged duration of action if we're not adding on a sedative early on. But as we all know, this is one study, but science should be reproducible if it is in fact true. So I'm going to kick it to you, Mike. Is there any other data, maybe even data this year that found a similar finding? Yeah. So well set up for me, John, in terms of that lead in for this last article we'll just touch on here. Same topic, but this was by Brian Driver and colleagues. This was published in CHEST titled Recall of Awareness During Paralysis Among ED Patients Undergoing Tracheal Intubation. And in essence, this was a very similar study looking at the prevalence of recalled awareness during paralysis, essentially in patients who we intubated and ventilated in the emergency department. This was out of a single center. This was out of Hennepin, for those of you that know Dr. Driver. This was a prospective observational study. And in essence, they have a continuous quality improvement database around airway management, where they began to pose this question, how many patients were aware, but paralyzed, so had that recall of awareness during paralysis. So in this particular study, 
They had adult patients who underwent intubation in the ED and had received a neuromuscular blocking agent. Using the same Bryce questionnaire, looking at three independent reviewers, adjudicated each case to determine whether it was definite or possible awareness of paralysis. And that was just like the Fuller study, their primary outcome. Overall, a little bit more. So they had 866 patients in their primary cohort and a little bit higher, John, in terms of the overall incidence. So they found 7.4% of patients were either definite or possibly having awareness of paralysis. So a really significant number. Now, they did not find an association with rocuronium use. And what they found is really what was a beneficial factor is if when we intubated someone, they had a depressed mental status. That was really the only thing that they had found that was independently associated with a lower odds of being aware, but aware during paralysis. Nonetheless, two important studies as we end our podcast here, highlighting an extremely important topic of awareness of paralysis during our patients that are in the ED, we intubate and subsequently initiate on mechanical ventilation. It is a very, very important topic to take note of. Well, gentlemen, I think we've gone a little bit longer, but this is one of our favorite podcasts. We kick off every year with a look back over the preceding 12 months to say, what were some key articles from that recent critical care and resuscitation literature? We've hit on the dose VF study, looking at double sequential. We've done part one and part two of the box trial. We've looked at the classic trial. We've looked at the PLUS study, the pilot trial, and subsequently now we've looked at these awareness during paralysis trials. So I think some very important take-home papers during 2022, and I can't thank you enough for taking us through that, the higher level details and the take-home messages. Guys, just a really outstanding job. Well, if you have any questions for us, please shoot us an email about this. We will certainly download a PDF of these articles of our write-up and our discussion to associate with this particular podcast. Once again, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2023. Thanks so much for joining us. We cannot wait for all the exciting topics that we are going to hit on over the course of this year together. Well, that's going to bring us to a close. To all four of us, we'll very much look forward to talking to you during our next podcast. Bye for now.